Hey, how you doing? Brian Kane with the Mental Performance Mastery Podcast. And today, my guest isn't just an accomplished and acclaimed athlete. He's also one of the most inspiring people that I've ever met. You've seen Tom Murphy on the hit MMA show, The Ultimate Fighter, or maybe you've seen him on a pay-per-view card inside of the Octagon. But he's also a businessman, an entrepreneur, a family man, and maybe most importantly, he's the founder of Sweethearts and Heroes, an organization dedicated to anti-bullying, bystander empowerment, kindness, and empathy that is changing schools and lives all over the world. Tom Murphy, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show, my friend. Well, Kane, thanks, buddy. And, you know, so many of my roots, um, you mentioned my mixed martial arts and uh, maybe a few people will still remember the Ultimate Fighter 2. That was uh, a long time ago, but certainly many of my roots um, I have to give you props for. There's so many lessons that, you know, as I laid on your couch and I was, I think, one of your earlier um, subjects that you experimented on. Um, there's so many of my roots that I certainly have to give thanks to you for and uh, the game that you brought uh, into my life. Well, I, 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 I take the couch reference and, and, and laugh, you know, because that's not exactly or even close to how we do this thing. But if you go back, you know, I think when we first met was, was probably after March 2006, right? March 2006, UFC 58, um, you know, main event, Rich Franklin versus David Loizzo, George St. Pierre versus BJ Penn. I mean, kind of a who's who of mixed martial arts. And you're the first fight on that card. And we started to work together after that, after that UFC fight, um, when, you know, one of your strength coaches at the time, Jackie Simonson was in a sports psychology class I was teaching at the University of Vermont. And she introduced me to you. You remember you drove up to Newport, Vermont when I was the AD at North Country High School. And we, we kind of hit it off there and then started going with you to Montreal when you were training up at TriStar Gym. And, you know, that at the time was kind of the, the who's who gym and mixed martial arts with David Loizzo, who was a title contender, and Patrick Cote, who was a contender, and St. Pierre, who won the title and lost the title and was coming back. So you were right in the thick of it. And in The Ultimate Fighter too, I mean, you, you were in the octagon with Rashad Evans, who's a UFC Hall of Famer and world champion. Your coach was Rich Franklin, who we've had on this podcast, who was a UFC champion and Hall of Famer, you know? So you've been in there with the best of the best. And I'm just excited today, man, to kind of hear your story about that journey into mixed martial arts. Um, but before we get started, let's go into the right now, right? And right now, you own a restaurant, St. Albans, Vermont, right there kind of near the Canadian border. And before we started to record, you talked about the restaurant situation, in your business with coronavirus. Would you talk a little bit about kind of where you're at with that before we dive into the MMA career? Sure. Um, you know, I am about 10 miles off the Canadian border. Um, it's really put that that's part of my story and how I ended up, you know, making, uh, developing my skills in mixed martial arts because I was an hour from Montreal. And as I you know, worked on my skills from the sport of wrestling into jujitsu and mixed martial arts, I was able to find TriStar Gym. I'm sure we'll go over a lot of that. Yeah. But we're just in a small little town, um, you know, where St. Albans is. It's about 10 miles off the Canadian border, about 20 miles north of Burlington, Vermont. And um, it's a neat little place. It's a small place. Um, but we have a restaurant here. I've been a restaurant owner for about, oh, about 10 years now. And um, gosh, 
I could fill 10 podcasts with the lessons that I've gotten. I mean, I lost $200,000 my first two years in the business and it was brutal. It was a tough game. And I finally figured it out once I started to apply different lessons. And when I got a coach, you know, like the best lesson you could ever give a kid is get a coach. doesn't matter if you want to play the violin or, or learn how to kiss better. You know, I tell kids that that makes them laugh. I say, get a coach. And I didn't take my own advice. And, you know, after the amazing lesson I learned in losing 200 grand out of my own pocket, which, you know, when I moved to St. Albans, I moved here with about a thousand dollars, a baby and a wife. So any money I'd ever made, I had made myself. And so it was a, it was the best money I've ever spent in my life. Um, nearly lost my mind a couple times, but we got it dialed in. We got it figured out. And, you know, the last six or seven years of the restaurant had just, um, you know, we, we were about a $400,000 gross um, restaurant when I got the place. Um, and the last couple of years, we've just tinkered at about $2 million gross. Uh, so it's not a giant place, but for the population of the area, it, it does pretty well. Um, and of course, we have 40 employees. And that's kind of the story of what happened with Corona as a couple of days before the um everything hit and everyone knew that um, we were getting shut down like everything else. Um, I had the phone calls. I had crying mommies, um, single mommies that were calling me saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is how I pay a lot of my bills. It's um, I'm in trouble. And, you know, I sat on my couch at about seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, my wheels are always turning, man. I work seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's just my translation from the sport of wrestling into the business world. I just don't have an off switch. And as I sat on my couch at um, seven o'clock in the morning, you know, I had so many thoughts and, and feelings. And, you know, I have a set of core values that I lived by in the restaurant for years um, and have dominated my business life. And, um, you know, that kind of has, has been the centerpiece or the goal um, of the restaurant is to maintain those core values and you know, maintain those financial goals. Uh, but I changed them. I sat on the couch and the first thing I said to myself is uh, the number one goal has to be to keep people employed. And there's no other industry. There's very few industries that were harder hit than the restaurant industry. You know, we depend on people coming and sitting in seats and the margins are so small. I mean, if you're making six or seven cents on a, on a single dollar when you talk about food, um, you got to have things dialed in. That's part of my restaurant journey, another story. Um, but as I came up with that goal, that that was the number one thing was to keep people employed. It was the only thing we were going to really think about outside of helping to feed the community. Cause when the shelves cleared, that was a whole nother, uh, predicament that everybody was in. And what were we going to do with the food providers and the leverage that we had? So, you know, then, then, you know, my mind is always working and it's always um, attacking things. You know, I, I attack everything like an opponent. It doesn't matter if it's a plate of food. Um, it doesn't matter uh, if it's an idea or uh, a challenge or a hurdle. I just attacked it. And, you know, I came up with a crazy little idea. We've never really done takeout or delivery. And so I made up a handful of family style meals and I literally went into the restaurant, kicked the kitchen doors open. And I was like, look what we're going to do, you know, because I just bring this intensity. And most people like after six months quit when they work with me, because when they first meet me, they're like, oh, this is going to be great. This guy's so intense. He doesn't have an off switch. And uh, 
but after about six months, people are like, I've had it. You know, I just, I just came to work. So if you stick around with me long enough, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So as I kick these doors open and I'm like, look what we're going to do. I heard this collective sigh from about 80% of the employees. Like, like here he goes again, like this isn't going to work. What are we going to, you know, um, I'm just worried about feeding my family and, you know, not having to check. Um, And dude, it was unbelievable the rally that our team did. I mean, all of our servers turned into delivery drivers and we probably did three times the amount of food the last three months than we've ever done in the history of the restaurant in the industry that should have been decimated. And um, there were a lot of things that we did, man. We did a free spaghetti dinner. We had a line down Main Street at one point, 1,600 people we fed. Um, We delivered our famous mac and out, which is like a big mac and cheese family. We live streamed it. And I I set up my computer in our new Twigs mobile that we bought um, because we just had to, you know, pivot on this whole thing. And um, I have this waitress who's about four feet tall. Her name is Camille and she's in her fifties and I'm always, you know, ribbing her and harassing her and she's harassing me. So we went around and delivered these meals and you could, in the community, you could call someone out for being like an excellent community member. And we showed up at their house and Mac their day. Um, and we did all of these things. And I could give you a list of things that we did. And I think the single thing that you need to focus on or that people needed to focus on was the relationships that you have with the community and other people and forget about the money. If you like mother Teresa said that, right. She said, never worry about the numbers. If you want to change the world, just start with the person next to you and you'll change the world. But she said, never worry about the numbers. And I kind of took that mindset and I said, what are we going to do to help this community? Because look, fear man is a crippling thing. It's a crippling thing in the ring. Um, I'm not talking about like being anxious and, you know, using certain, I guess, aspects of fear, right, to, to sharpen your senses. But when people are in a limbic state, man, when they're down here in the brainstem and they're fearful, like, and I didn't do this to trick anybody, but like we served the community so well, we gave away so much. Um, and again, I, I have to reiterate, I didn't do it to trick anybody. But if you're going to go back to eat somewhere when these doors open up, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the person or the group or the restaurant that gave you an emo- like we know emo- like a memory centers around two things right emotion and being intellectually confounding being interesting if you can make something interesting or intellectually confounding and tie it to emotion people will always remember and years and years ago man i'm always asking people like what's the secret in business and i had a friend of mine years ago um, as i kind of wrapped this little restaurant beginner piece up uh, and I said, what's the secret, man, when I was trying to figure this out, you know, going from real failure into okay success and how was I going to turn the corner and start making money? And I'm like, what's the secret, man? And this guy had made millions of dollars cutting hair, right? And uh, I said, what's the secret? He said, dude, it's so easy. He said, just love your customers. And, you know, I got to thinking long and deep about that and, um you know, it's easy to make people believe that you love them, but if you love them, they will love you back. And if you truly believe that in your heart, um, you'll always win because there's nothing more important than the relationships you have. So I think the people that double down on relationships and reducing that anxiety and that fear that people have, 
or had or still have, they'll be the winners in the end. Tom, I'm excited, man. It's um, <clears throat> excited to continue to dive more into this in the restaurant for those when you're driving through. If you're in Burlington, Vermont, or on your way up to, to Montreal, you know, through Vermont, it's Twigs, an American gastro pub in St. Albans, Vermont. I've been there. It's tremendous. Highly, highly recommend it. And Tom, you know, you talked about the importance of relationships with your community. And, you know, before we go back into MMA, and before we start looking at the fingernail polish and why your nails are covered different colors. So if you hold those, hold those up to the camera so people can see, but before, before we go into why you paint your fingernails different colors and before we start talking more about MMA, I want you to talk about your upbringing as we, as you were talking about relationships with the community during coronavirus and the experiences that you had growing up that, that make you who you are today. I know your father ran a mission home in Philadelphia when you were a child, but the family wasn't making much money. What was it like growing up in that environment? Talk to us a little bit about that. You know, it's funny, Brian. I, I never used to talk a lot about this. It's only been the last four or five years that I've really started to refocus on it. And I guess it came out of the question that people would ask me. They would say, you know, when did Sweethearts and Heroes begin? And the easy answer is about 12 years ago or so. Uh, when I started to, when I talked to that first school about bullying. Um, but truthfully, it started when I was about nine years old that I can remember. My parents, for whatever reason, ran a mission home and it wasn't like a state run home. It was just my parents opened our home up to people that were homeless. And um, you talk about writing a book, man. Um, this is the book I've got to write someday and um, about my brothers and sisters growing up. You know, my brother, Bobby Cummings, you know, fell out of a tree and broke his neck and died robbing a house. You know, Don was a overdosed in a warehouse, died. You know, Stephanie was you know, prostituted herself. You know, Karen um, brought her little baby because her parents kicked her out when she got pregnant. She was from a very religious family. And I mean, I could go on and on. I spent time going in and out of prisons, visiting my brothers and sisters. And these people at, ate at our dinner table. And I remember my parents had three biological kids. I'm the youngest and two sisters older, all a year apart. Um, one time my parents, uh, this is one of my earliest memories when I was you know, eight or nine, gave my bedroom away and I slept in a bathtub for a year. And that always makes people like frown like adults. And I say, well, no, no, no. It's pretty freaking awesome as a kid to go sleep in the bathtub with your pillow and blanket. So um, I didn't know any different, but that's just who my parents were. And these people were at our dinner table every night. And those are the people that I grew up with, people that had this hopelessness in their lives, people that were struggling with some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose, and really were not accepted. And those are the two core things that our organization you know, really deals with is meaning, purpose, and, and human acceptance. And that's how it began. And um, wasn't until years later, uh, you know, we moved to upstate New York when I was 10 or 11 or something like that. My parents literally, my parents were both born and raised in Philadelphia and they wanted out. My dad literally opened up a real estate magazine, touched his finger um, to a spot in Cooperstown, New York. Of course, you know Cooperstown. I hope you do. It'd be weird if you didn't. Uh, baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, so we live just outside of Cooperstown, about 12 miles. My dad bought a house for $30,000 on two acres of land. He thought he was a farmer, uh, had a little barn attached to it. Um, just a city guy his whole life and um, uh, had a little barn. And so he built a couple apartments inside and he had a couple people shipped up to 
uh, New York from Philadelphia. You know, few people that were just down on their luck. And he, he continued our little mission home. In, and that's kind of weird for like when you're in middle school and people are living in your barn and they were like people that were, you know, questionable, whatever that means, just couldn't make it on their own. Um, that was a tricky thing for me growing up. So I didn't really hide it, but I never talked about it. And I was a kid from Hartwick too, which is the town I was from. I wasn't from Cooperstown. I was one of those Hartwick kids. So that put me on the outside a little bit more. Um, but then I found wrestling and really was my savior because I had some severe academic issues growing up, uh, major, uh, to the point in the second grade that my dad took me out of school um, because I was labeled as dyslexic. And my dad, I can remember, I can close my eyes and I don't have many memories of second grade, but I can remember being in his third story bedroom where his bedroom was and being on his bed and him saying, when I got taken out of school because I was dyslexic, he said, oh, that just means you can read backwards better than other people. And, um, you know, so he took me out of school, moved to upstate New York. And of course they tested me and uh, put me in a special combination class, like a three, four combination, um, because I did have some issues. And of course my dad, you know, like giving the worst piece of dyslexia advice ever, um, got right back into that whole situation in New York and said, there's nothing wrong with you. You just got to do fourth grade over again. So when all those other kids moved on, he left me in fourth grade, which really was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, we know that the great brain scientist, John Medina says that the physical body, you can look at it and say, that kid is ready for this or ready for that. Well, the brain works the same way. It's called the dual systems model. And you know, we never look at a kid's brain and say, he's not ready for this or she's not ready for that. We just, whatever the cutoff age is for education, I think Gladwell talks about that in Outliers. Um, you know, you just throw them in and then when they can't do what everyone else does at their age, they have a disability or, but I really did. I had some real challenges in high school and I graduated with, I think, a 630 on my SATs. You've never met anyone in your life with a grade that low. I've been in front of 2 million kids and I've never met my academic equal. So I struggled, but I found wrestling. It really became my savior. Um, and then I have a big long story on how I actually got into the state university of New York at Brockport, which is very fascinating. Uh, long story, not long, but it's, it's, um, but, but that was my life growing up, man. Let's, let's go, let's go back to, to, you know, growing up with, with this dyslexia, right. And, and, how did that kind of condition impact your school and academic life? I mean, how, how did that impact? Here's the deal, man. The difference was this, and I, I got to be careful when I say this because it's a real issue. Um, I really struggled, man. I read one complete book in high school cover to cover. Now, some kids may say, well, I did the same too. But you didn't. You did it more out of choice because you didn't want to do your schoolwork. Like, I just really couldn't get through a book. Um, so for me, what I tell people especially in those early years, you know, those first seven years, eight years of life are just so critical. Like you've all the psychological research has gone into this from the ancient Spartans that would separate their kids at seven or eight. Cause they knew the same thing, right? Like you are who you are. And if you don't have that adjust or that, if you don't have certain principles that uh, come into your principles is not the right word. If you if the, you don't have certain developmental milestones that are based on you know empathy and relationship with mom and dad, you're screwed. I mean, no, not saying you can't become successful and achieve things, but you're really going to have some issues growing up. 
And for me, my dad never let me believe I had an issue. And what I like to tell kids is that program was never corrupted up here. Like that's what happens. I, and I, like I said, I got to be careful when I say that because I work in schools like every day of the school year and I can't go around and say that's a bunch of nonsense that labeling kids. Um, it's not a bunch of nonsense. But for me, you know, I never had that program up here c- corrupted. So it really wasn't until I got into high school or maybe ninth grade, um, maybe middle school that I started thinking I'm having trouble. But by then you gotta you gotta fall back into yourself like you're supposed to. You're gonna become very you know challenging for your parents just because there's a special program that runs in your brain and it has to biologically. But just before that, you know, I think I I felt like I was having real difficulties. But I think I buried it all in wrestling, and you know I got so many accolades in wrestling that the rest of it didn't really matter. And as you get into high school, right, and you start getting into wrestling, like you're, you're at a high school wrestling coach who never wrestled a day in his life. You know, how did you learn the fundamentals of wrestling and become so good? So the first thing I would say about wrestling is I just, I never knew how to wrestle. I was probably the most challenged wrestler when I got to college. Um, I really didn't have fundamentals. I went to a wrestling camp once a week in the summertime where I would pick stuff up. Uh, I had an assistant coach who was okay, decent. Um, you know, I used to go to his house and wrestle in his basement on, on carpets and then a little wrestling mat. Um, but I don't, I tell people, I didn't really know how to wrestle until I got to college. I just didn't know how to lose. I didn't know how to wrestle. I just didn't know how to lose. And eventually that gave me some sticking points. And these are some of the skeletons that you uncovered years ago. And I still think about them today that winning and losing takes care of itself. That's not true in my brain. I've still been trying to fix that for the last 20 years. It's all about winning. You know, I was the kid that couldn't play a game without winning because, you know, I think I probably told you this before that if I wasn't going to win, that board was getting turned over. You know, if my wife were sitting behind me right now, she, she refuses 23 years to play games with me because like I have to win. It's just this program that I have. It's this, I I used to think it was like the alpha male or the, the King lion syndrome, but really like it goes back to my childhood. And from the time I can remember my dad uh, and, and I would wrestle, I just have this thing inside of me where I have to touch people. I got to put my hands on people. I remember when I moved to Cooperstown in that combination class, I can remember my first day of school. It's a true story. There's this kid, I remember his name, his name is Brad. He's a big kid, like taller than everybody in the class and, you know, kind of heavier set. And I'm in the lunch line, first day of school, and I jump on his back. Remember, I was coming from being homeschooled, right? One of these screwed up homeschool kids. And I jump on his back in the lunch line out of nowhere, and he starts to cry. And uh, I get detention my first day of school (laughs) in Cooper's. I get recess detention. And, um... I just, I just, you know, for me, man, my dad and I would wrestle and box um, every day of my life. Now, some people fool around their dad once in a while. Not me. Every day I could get my dad on his knees, me with boxing gloves on, and my dad with snow mittens. And he never let me win. And as I got older, man, and this, this could really turn into a... Um, a challenging discussion. Um, And if somebody ever picked apart my psychology, they'd say, this is why you're so screwed up. 
But it got so vicious between my dad and I. And it always started out in fun, like always playing. But then he'd give me a good sock and knock the wind out of me. And I had to get him back. And my dad couldn't stop either, right? And um, eventually, if my mom were here, she'd tell you about the beds that we broke and the walls that we put holes in. I mean, it was every day. It's funny. I was just uh, – Andrew Ackerman's doing a little – uh, documentary thing on Sweethearts and Heroes, and I pulled out some old videotapes, and I found a videotape of me and my buddy and my dad boxing at like 14 years of age. Like, it was a disaster. <laughs> and like, we're trying to kill each other. And this was every day of my life. So when you ask me about wrestling, and, you know, certainly I picked up some moves. Um, I, was, I couldn't take someone down to save my life in high school. Um, but I just didn't know how to lose. And if you were going to wrestle me, you better pack everything you got because you're going to have to, you're not going to be able to hold me down. Um, you're going to have, if you're going to try and take me down, it's going to be a real problem for you because I'm not going to stop. So, you know, that was really my secret to wrestling. And I, my senior year, I kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I did real good my junior year. Uh, I was placed real high in the section. High school you're talking about? In high school? In high school yeah. And out of my senior year, I just no one knew who I was. And I went into the state finals. Um, and this was when New York only had one. Now it's like big school and little school thing. But in that time in 1994, there was only one state champion. And um, unfortunately, I thought I believed I had to be at 155 pounds. Um, and I wish I hadn't because I definitely could have won the state championship at 167. Um, but I, I, I ran into a four-time state champion, John Lang, who wrestled for Penn State um, in the finals. And um, so that ended my high school career with 37-1. and one. Um, mm. And uh, that was the only thing that really gave me an opportunity to go to college because, you know, of my academics. Well, and you got a pretty crazy story about how you got into college in Brockport. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, I'll go brief, man. I'll try and go as brief as I can. But, you know um, – you know, I thought I was going to wrestle the rest of my life. You know, that was just what I was going to do. Is I, I knew nothing else. And, uh, you know, back then there were no computers and resumes. But I remember some guy came to our house and filled out a piece of paper uh, on my wrestling, um, all the things I'd done. And you fill out your academics. And mine was like fine print at the very bottom. You know what I mean? Um, like so small, you couldn't read it. And mailed them out to all these schools. I think my parents paid like five or 600 bucks. And I don't think my dad, man, when I was in high school, my dad never made more than 30,000 bucks a year. So like I had to do something to, if I was going to go to college. Um, and it was like March and wrestling season was just over. But I remember that the wood stove was going and the phone rang. And my mom said, Tommy, it's um, State University of New York at Brockport. And uh, I grabbed the phone. It was assistant wrestling coach Brian Quick two-time national champion, just a real stud. And he's said, we're looking for a guy in your weight class. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the school I was waiting to call, get a call from. You were my first choice. And um, only school that called, only school that called. And um, my first day at Brockport, imagine this, imagine a kid doing this today. My first day at Brockport was my first day on campus. Never even went to visit the school. Like I accepted over the phone. My mom put, dad put me in a car, you know, that fall and drove me to Brockport, dropped me off. And uh, so as I got there, I see Brian Quick and he says to me, I can remember where in Tuttle in the athletic complex, where I was standing. I can remember this man, 1994, 95. He said, 
if you make it past your first semester, um, talk to me and I'll tell you the only reason you're here. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of a weird thing to tell a kid. But so, because Brockport had a terrible reputation, no girlfriends on campus the whole school year, 11 o'clock curfew all school year. Like, this, is rest, this is the wrestling program. Wrestling program. That means the first year of your whole schooling, someone, an upperclassman comes to your room every single night. Coach Murray, who's a lunatic, Olympic coach, absolute lunatic. Um, like, I, I would even say he, he, he would challenge Bobby Knight on a few areas that I couldn't even talk about because, like, it wouldn't sure. be right. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, um, but I owe the guy more than almost anybody on earth. I mean, I hate him more than anybody on earth, but I owe him more than anybody on earth. Yeah. Um, but Coach Murray calls your room every night. Like, every night. You're, you're like a junior in college. And, like, Murphy, what are you doing? I'm in my room, Coach. Same place I've been for the last three years, remember? No bars, no parties the entire school year. I saw him kick a national champion off the team my sophomore year. And when you – because he wouldn't really turn down his radio and he had a bad attitude. Like, that's a guy you don't want to mess with. This guy was most outstanding wrestler in the country. Boom, kicked him off the team. So it's just a guy you don't mess with, right? And uh, so Coach Quick knew that out of every recruiting 20 kids or whatever they brought in, maybe two or three would make it four years. Um, Anyway, so Quick says that to me. I struggled through my first year. I was in remedial everything because, like, my writing and my reading and so I make it through that first semester and I run right back to quick. And I'm like, man, tell me, you, you told me that if I made it through my first year or my first semester, you tell me the only reason I'm here. And he said, well, it's kind of a funny story. He said, I was, it was March or something of last year, this past year, it was cold outside. The wind was blowing. Um, and Murray calls me coach quick and says, go over to my office and get something. And he goes, and you never tell coach no or why. You just go and do whatever he says. And he said, I, I get my stuff on. I walk over to Tuttle. The wind is blowing. He, he said, I remember how cold it was out. He said, I get over to his office. And if you go into his office, man, it's like a Dr. Seuss book. Like there's pyramids of books and stuff. It looks like he hasn't touched his office since like 79. I don't know. It's a mess. So quick, quick says, I'm looking around for whatever coach wanted. I can't find it. So I pick up the phone and I call him and he screams at me and he's like, you idiot, look in the trash can. So quick says, I'm looking in the trash can and I'm digging through and I see this weight class of the weight class because I was doing the recruiting that year. He said, I, I see this weight class that I need and I pulled the paper out. I folded up. I put it in my pocket. A couple of days later, I was doing recruiting calls and I remembered it was on my dresser. He said, I went, opened it up. It was that piece of paper that that guy had filled out on me. And I was sitting by the wood stove when Quick called me that night. And I like telling this to kids, man, because I said, the only reason I'm here in front of you right now is because I was garbage. I was trash. That's what people thought about me. And then four years later, I graduated with almost a perfect GPA in psychology and uh, did a lot of work in philosophy. Um, and I didn't get any smarter. What I did was I got strategies and I had a man that came into my life and really epitomized, you know, and you've heard this one many times, but this is what he epitomized that life is not a talent contest. It's a strategy game. And I had every strategy that I needed everyone to be successful in academics because I did it in wrestling. Why couldn't I apply them? 
but nobody had ever framed it to me like that. And I became addicted to uh, developing strategies from wrestling for academics. And it was tough, man. It was the toughest thing I've ever done in my life because I had so much ground to make up that most people kind of just subconsciously absorb, you know, like when you just go to high school and you pay attention, which I couldn't do, um, you know, you just get certain fundamentals that I never got. And so, but yeah, man, that, it was a crazy thing, man. And I went to Brockport to wrestle. I did real well. I, I second in the state of New York, second in the country at Brockport. And uh, again, I ran into a returning national champion that, I should have beat him easily. Uh, it was my only Division Three loss that year. But let's go. Let's go back to before we before we kind of transition from your success as a wrestler into MMA. Yeah, I want you to talk more about talent versus strategy. That, that you said something that I think is so revolutionary. That life in success is not a talent game; it's a strategy game. Would you expand on that a little bit, Murph? I will, man. Uh, you know, I, I tell everybody that I couldn't really frame it. Um, and I'm staring off into space here because I'm thinking. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you how it went down. I met a guy named Dr. Owen Ireland. And I don't know if Dr. Ireland's still alive. I, somehow I think he may have passed. But he ran for the New York State Senate. He was a fascinating individual. And uh, what's Batman's butler's name? Um, Alfred. Alfred. So um, that's what he reminded me of. He's this tall, white-haired guy. Um chest, you know, back, shoulders back. And his voice was like, I'm a listener, man. One thing I've, I've always learned and, you know, learned this from wrestling that I, I like to listen to things, right? I like to listen to my coach in the corner and same thing with mixed martial arts. I'm just, that's how I learn is through auditory. Um, like I crush 50 or 60 books a year now, easy, hands down, because I listen to them. I mean, I still enjoy reading. I've developed that enjoyment. I'm just a little bit slower than a lot, but you know, as I, after my first semester, I was, um, I was waving this big flag like a moron with my undeveloped, immature, 19-year-old brain because I had gotten like a 3-5 my first semester. And, but I was in all the idiot classes, right? Like remedial everything. But of course, being a 19-year-old with a 3-5 or the highest GPA in the wrestling team, I'm like, eh! waving this big flag, you know, like how smart I am. And then I get ushered into an American history class, like a real college class. And Dr. Ireland walks in that day and he um, turns to the blackboard and he says, I give one A per semester. And like, I was like, well, okay. Um, and he said, I'm going to ask you two questions at midterm. I'm going to write two theoretical questions of American history on the board and you're going to take this little blue book. You know what I'm talking about. Sure. Composition gonna, book. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to write for an hour and a half. And about, I about fainted in my chair at that point. I wasn't worried about getting an A, like the one mythical Dr. Ireland A. Uh, but when he said that, I'm like, dude, I can't write five pages. How do you want me to write for an hour and a half? Those were his exact words because I'm a listener. And uh, he said, I'm going to do the same thing for the final. And I'm like, explain women's suffrage, something like that. And that was what Dr. Ireland, his class was. And so I immediately knew I was in trouble. And I kind of got to back up, take one step back in the story. Um, I get to class late. And there's about 50 or 60 kids in this room. And of course, my eye goes right exactly to where my seat is supposed to be, which is 
in the back row. Like that's where I always sit. That's my spot. And all the chairs were taken. And normally I would maybe have walked up to somebody and been like, Hey man, you're in my seat. Like even, (laughs) you know, there's no assigned seats in college really, but normally I would have done something like that, you know? Um, But there was only one chair open. And as I get there late in my sweatpants and my wrestling shirt, there's one seat open directly dead center in front of Dr. Ireland. And so I go and sit in that chair. And as he explains, 1A per semester, um, uh, as he explains, like the fact that he's only going to make you write for an hour and a half for your midterm and for your final. I'm right in front of this dude, but I'm starting to get captivated by his voice. And then he just starts telling stories, right? That's all he did. And I just started to fall in love with this class because he didn't have to do any work. He would just tell stories. And he was like the best storyteller. And his voice was like uh, Scott Brick or somebody that does these audio books. I don't know Scott Brick, but like there's some people with some like real good voices. Right. And um, so I just became captivated by him. And I remember muddling through first semester and I don't know, remember what I got on that. But you know what I did? I did exactly what he told me to do um, right for an hour and a half. And I think I, and I have a very distinct memory about this, that. Um, I, there was only about four or five kids out of 50 or 60 that wrote the entire time. But I love this man. I love going to his class and I like the way he treated me. Um, sometimes I'd stay after class and I'd talk to him a little bit um, about things and things that he said. And, you know, I just, it just, it wasn't like, I, I didn't feel like he had a certain affection for me, but it was just like, it was neat. And I think it was probably the interest that I was showing in his material that, you know, allowed him to stay after and talk to me. We remember walking out of the building tons of times with him and just talking about things. And, um, and then something really weird happened. And I've only told this story maybe a dozen times. Um, I'm in the student union um, and I hear Dr. Island's voice. And by then we were pretty chill, him and I, and uh, I hear his voice around the corner and I was like walking that way. And he starts He's talking to somebody else about this big wrestler that sits in front of him and asks all these interesting questions. And I remember thinking, how have I fooled this guy? Like, how have I fooled him into thinking that I'm some kind of an academic? Like, I'm not that smart. Like, this is Dr. Ireland we're talking about. And um, he was talking about me. And like, I get little goosebumps thinking about that right now. It was the first time in my life because I really had developed the self-awareness about the challenges that I had in school. You know, the program, like, you know, it wasn't corrupted early. Like my dad saved me from that. But as I developed more self-awareness, I did realize that I had some real challenges and, um, and I just hit them all inside wrestling. And, you know, if I could cheat my way through something or not do something I did. And, um, but that second semester, Dr. Ireland and that little story of him believing in me was huge. And then there was a point where Dr. Ireland and I had a conversation. I'll answer your question now. And he literally told me, he said, Tom, you know, you have every strategy that you need to be successful. And I was thought, this guy's crazy. He's nuts. Like, I don't. Here's my grades. Like, for years, I don't have every strategy to be successful. And he said to me, he said, you know, if there was a wrestling camp that came to your town, where would you sit? And when I do this in front of kids, I like the 
front row in the auditorium. I like pushed myself in between two kids and I'm like, ah. I'm like, okay, do it. Okay. Do the move. Okay. Do it again. Do it again. Like that was my strategy in wrestling. Right. Front what was my strategy in academics? Like that seat back there was my strategy. You think I ever asked a, a teacher in school to like, oh, could you do that problem again, sir? Never. Right. I always stayed after wrestling practice. Like I used to show you could ask people on my college team. I would show up an hour before practice, two or three days a week. And I would jump rope for an hour before practice without missing a beat. Like I, I was working to do it so I could jump without missing one, you know, skip. And um, after practice, I would be the guy running in the hallway when everybody was going to the, the, uh, you know, the, the mess hall to eat the dining hall. Like, but Dr. Ireland said, Tom, you know, you stay after practice with me and talk to me about all these things. So I have this series of lessons that I give these Dr. Ireland lessons that he pointed out to me, you know, like the one of the fun ones that really moved me was this whole notion of being like, when you feel frustrated, you know, this, you turn that frustration into fascination fascination right and you know dr ireland like if somebody took me down man i would cogitate i would like become obsessed one takedown if i got taken down one time in practice i'd be like how did that guy do that and you know sometimes i would this goes into a mindset discussion i would be walking down the campus with my books in my hand and i would be in my wrestling stance and i would look around and people would be like looking at me right like whoa because i was just in you know i was just that was my mindset all the time and Dr. Ireland, I remember him telling me one time, he said, what if you took that mindset and translated that into your academics? And so I remember doing this. This is a true story, man. Um, I took a physical geography class at the same time. And, you know, I can remember going, I lived in this quad. It was my sophomore year because I was in this quad. And my roommates would always play Mortal Kombat every day. I never played one game of Mortal Kombat in college, not one. But every day I'd come back to the center room, they'd play Mortal Kombat. And I remember getting in front of the TV one day and I'd be like, dudes, I got to tell you about barometric pressure. Dude, this is going to blow your mind. Like, you know about the Coriolis effect? Like, dude, you're not going to believe this. And all my roommates who were wrestlers were like, get out of the way, move. But that's what I would do in wrestling. Like, if you were my buddy, Kane, and you never wrestled a day in your life, like I would be touching you and grabbing you and like doing an arm drag or like holding a hand position. Um, and you would be like, dude, like, would you stop touching me? Like, stop it. Like I would just force it on you because that was my mindset. I was in wrestling mode all the time. And Dr. Ireland is like, if you're in physical geography mode all the time, you'll learn it. Right. That's like Feynman. Right. The, the physicist Feynman had this Feynman technique and you want to learn something, just teach it. I mean, the ancient philosophers said if you want to learn something, if you teach it, you learn it twice. And, you know, that's my strategy today for everything. If I got to um, go talk about something, I just go teach it to everybody I run into. Hmm. Like, I do it's that with every, I drive people crazy. It's a total, it's total, it's total immersion and spaced repetition at the same time. Yes. I always talk about the three steps to growth of total immersion backed up with spaced repetition, backed up with an accountability partner and a plan and something Amen. that you're committed to where if you just get the total immersion, like think about this, you go to a class and you're in a class the whole time or you go to a wrestling camp, but then you never talk about it with anybody. You don't get it. Or you call yeah. success hotline, but you never talk about it. You never write it down. You never live it. 
it's like, this isn't going to do it. This is the starting point, total immersion, but the spaced repetition is part of how you get to the level of mastery and performance. And then if you're going to, you're going to increase your spaced repetition, if you're committed to someone else and have that plan, Amen. you know, and so you've talked about life is a, is a strategy game, not a talent game. And obviously you, you learn some of those strategies through your wrestling coach, through Dr. Ireland in college, you all of a sudden have, you know, you have a very successful wrestling career, you lose one match, and then you decide to pursue a career in mixed martial arts. And we, on our podcast, we've had world champion and Hall of Famer Rich Franklin, who you know as, as, as was a coach of yours on The Ultimate Fighter. We had an episode with two-time world champion and will be Hall of Famer Vitor Belfort. Sure. So a lot of our listeners are familiar with mixed martial arts. And, you know, the kind of when, when those guys got started, similar to when you got started, it was still kind of like it wasn't as mainstream as it is today on ESPN. Sure. I mean, you could hardly even find it on pay-per-view. So – at the time, how did you get involved with from wrestling into mixed martial arts? How did that whole evolution take place, Murph? So I have this deep obsession with touching people. Like, that sounds weird. As you've said many times, and you're giving a t-shirt that says free hugs. I just can't keep my hands off of like my buddies wrestling. And like, it's just, I'm, I'm programmed to do it. Like that's bottom line is I'm programmed to like wrestle. And so when I got done college, you know, it's, it's weird, man. I took second in the state, second in the country. And, you know, I'm a second place guy. I mean, I, lot of, I won a lot of tournaments and a lot of matches. But for some reason, and I think it's the best thing that's ever happened to me, like taking second place in the state and second place in the country, because I always am fearful. And I never choked in the big match. You know, John Lang five-pointed me in the finals, and I came back, and it was 7-2 or something. But he five-pointed me on a bad shot I took. So – it was a bum thing. It happened. I just couldn't recover from a guy that was a four-time state champ. Um, wrestling the state and the national finals in college. And, you know, I think that I, maybe I choked a little bit there because I was definitely better than this guy. Um, I wrestled Jason Robeson, who was trained for the Olympics the year before, and he barely beat me. Um, so I know I was better than him. I just wasn't ready to go be in the national finals um, that year. So, um but taking second, man, both times, I think it's just kept me hungry. And like, I'm happy that it happened. And I don't know if I would change it again, because like I worked out like a nut yesterday and the day before, like a, like a zoo animal. Um, I, the other day, the first day of my fast, I did um, an hour straight of burpee pull-ups. I'm talking like chin above the bar, uh, nonstop. I think I got like 360 and I'm 45 years old. You know, I'm like a lunatic like that. Um, and I don't know if I had taken first, if I would have put on my retirement hat, like I've never felt like I've ever retired. Like, I don't even use that word. You don't fight anymore. No, no. But I, anyway, my point is that like you hear me, right? Like I'm insane. Um, but my point is I just wasn't ready to quit wrestling. And, you know, I happened to move to, I graduated from school, entered the railroad industry where I had a 17 year career in the railroad industry um, as an executive in, uh, for a company called Rail America, um, which I, some best part of that was just the coaches that I had, the work for a guy that turned a half a billion dollar company into a $2 billion company. Imagine the lessons you learned there. Um, I could talk about that for days, uh, but I wasn't ready to quit wrestling. And I just happened to be um, a half an hour from a guy who retired undefeated from Carlson Gracie's team. And Carlson used to come to Vermont all the time. And it was this weird sport called jujitsu. 
And, you know, I was coming off being an all American and I go to this little jujitsu gym and I put a dress on and, and I got choked six ways from Sunday and I became obsessed with him just like wrestling, but it was really just filling that need. And then I got into this Naga circuit in Northeast one year, I don't know, 2000 something um, became the Naga heavyweight guy of the year that year. Um, and then it was just kind of a natural progression. And then there was this weird circuits of mixed martial arts. I mean, you had the UFC and maybe King of the Cage, and there weren't too many others except for Pride. And then there were a lot of other ones that were kind of like, you didn't know if they were amateur or professional. Like, I remember one of my first ones was with no gloves um, in Springfield, Mass., I think. Um, but anyway, um, it was just a natural progression for me. And I did leave out, you know, in my last year, year or two in college, when a couple of the UFC's early ones, Dan Severn and those guys were on, I got the videotapes. I just became obsessed with it. And then when I found Julio's, his name was Julio Fernandez, um, I just started doing, and he really is one of the best. He just got his coral belt, which, you know, if you Google that, you'll see that there's only a handful of them on planet Earth. Like it went across the whole uh, jujitsu world because there's not too many coral belts out there. And um, so I trained with Julio for five or six years in just jujitsu. Um, and then the ultimate fighter one came on. And, uh, and then my sister harassed me into doing uh, an audition tape. And I took a camera. Um, after, you have to show you this sometime. I got it on digital, but I took a camera, went down to Julio's. Hey, I'm Julio. Julio Fernandez, Carlson Gracie, because Stefan Bonner was trained by uh, Carlson. And I had gone back and forth to Chicago and trained with those guys. And Carlson had come out for a fight or two of mine. And so I had a good connection there. And I made that tape. But then when I got home from training that day, I literally took no more than seven or eight minutes to make this tape. And I literally, my kids were in my garage that I had turned into a wrestling room. And I heard them in there screaming and yelling, all four of them. They were little at the time, like, two through five or something. And I opened them like, here's my toughest training partners. And I opened the door and my kids are in there like screaming and yelling and sent the tape in. And then I found myself on the ultimate fighter program. So, um, and then after that, and it was funny because when I fought in UFC 58, uh, well, I'm, I'm skipping way ahead. I don't know if you want me to yet, but I, I guess for me, like I just was obsessed with wrestling and that kind of combat sport. And I just wasn't ready for it to be over. And jujitsu and the early years of mixed martial arts just filled that. And I didn't do it for anybody. I just did it because I had that hunger inside of me. Well, it's right? kind of like a natural progression, right? From rest, college wrestling. At the, now, it's, it's college wrestling. If you make it and you pursue Olympics, and then you go into kind of, uh, you know, mixed martial arts is a path, right? It's like college baseball into minor league baseball into major leagues. Um, it's just all of a sudden now they're adding, yeah, but, but I, I, but I think my mindset was a little different Kane because I wasn't like, I'm going to be a star in mixed martial arts. I had a wonderful career in the railroad industry, man. Like most people, like my last year, I made a lot of money, man, is, you know, doing my job before I left it. Um, I just, I had four kids at home and, you know, I remember having a discussion with Joe Silva after, um, I had a fight, I was supposed to fight, um, Irish kid uh, in Iowa was supposed to fight in Belfast. And um, anyway, he hurt his neck and it got called off the week before. And um, uh, I remember talking to Joe Silva and he was going to book me for another fight. And I'm like, Joe, I can't. I'm like, I have a 
business engagement I have to be in in Boca Raton. And he's like, Tom, you got to decide whether you want to fight or whether you want to work. And, you know, I just, I always had the mindset that like, this was not a career for me. This is just like what's inside my heart. And it's my love. It's my passion is training. And like, I like training more than I do competing, to be honest with you. Um, well, and, if, and at the time, right at the time that I mean, this is when we were kind of started working together is you're undefeated in your mixed martial arts career. You bust, bust on the stage and beat maybe the best heavyweight in Canada at the time in the UFC and each old Arenas. And you're, you're an executive with a railroad. You've got a gym in St. Albans. You've got a restaurant in St. Albans and you're homeschooling four kids. <laughs> right. And if you look at the way, if you, if you, and if you look at how Tom Murphy trains, like the reason why the guy bought a gym is because he wanted to work out more. Right. And, and not only is it gym for fitness, it had a pool and it had a mixed martial arts training center. And even today, Tom, you're what, 46, how old are you? 45, 45, I think 45 years old and probably in better shape than most people, 25 years old who train full-time and are competing in the UFC. I mean, you just keep yourself in such an elite level of fitness. It's like you said the other day, doing what, 300 burpee pull-ups in an hour or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it is, it's as elite as it, as it gets. And it's because it's, it's not, it's a lifestyle for you. It's just what you do. It's kind of who you are. And, you know, you've, you've had, if we kind of transition here from your college athletic career into mixed martial arts or in the ultimate fighting championship, and you got to make a decision between maybe what you want to do or what's best for like your family and everything else. And talk about some of those, you know, and you had a fight with Gary Goodridge, I think it was where you're, you're in the octagon and he doesn't even show up and walk in. He just disappears. Right. So that was kind of where the sport was at at the time. And, and talk about some of kind of the mental performance techniques that you've used that you feel like have helped you to succeed you know, whether it's in the restaurant, whether it's as an entrepreneur, whether it's as a speaker and the number one anti-bullying, you know, advocate in the world, or as a professional mixed martial arts fighter, what are some of the most important mental performance strategies for you? Well, you know, I, I would go, I, I constantly, man, go back to some of the lessons that you and I worked on. And this is how I know that, you know, Kane Peak performance is the real deal. Because I find myself, whether it's backstage um, because I don't know if you've ever been out in front of 5,000 kids, mm. no middle schoolers, like high schoolers. Like if you go out in front of a thousand middle schoolers, like there's nothing that compares to it on planet earth. Now you go into a school and you, I'm serious, dude. Like, like you can go out at the Mandalay Bay. I fought at the Mandalay Bay in front of 15,000 people. Right. And that's a tough environment to be in. And, you know, um, one of the things that you and I worked on for a long time was to practice that environment, that experience that you could do that a hundred times before you get there. And that just never enters into a athlete's mind, right? Like, you know, I got to go to the gym, I got to practice. And, you know, you talk all the time about, you know, practice being 90% physical and 10% mental. And then this amazing shift happens, right? Like, and nobody ever prepares for that. And that works in all areas of my life. Now, I have seen people leave the stage in tears, like in tears, literally crying, because if you get in front of a middle school group of kids with their massively unformed brains, and if they don't buy your story, and you're supposed to talk to them for an hour and a half, if, if, if you don't have them like locked in and present the whole time, you're done. 
they'll start fooling around and talking and making animal noises and farting and burping and everybody's laughing. Like I've literally seen people leave the stage in tears. So you have to get mentally prepared for that. Like, what are you going to do when that happens? It's the same thing like in the ring, like most people don't get prepared for getting knocked down or, you know, getting taken down. Like you got to shake it off and you got to breathe and blow it out and let it go. You got to learn to thought stop things. Um, so, man, I, I mean, I use these in my everyday life. I use them when I go to a customer and I know there's a customer that's livid, furious. This happened to me outside the other day, almost in front of my wife. This lady just takes my head off because her food is 10 minutes was made 10 minutes before she got there. Go figure. So what did I do when I walked up to her and I could see the anger on her face? I was like, I just get present. I remind myself, you know, what Plato said, he said, be kind to everyone you meet. You never know what battle they're facing. And uh, so then I spun it back on her and I figured out that it was more her husband that was hammering her probably about other things in life and not about the food. Um, but really, it came down to taking a deep breath and becoming present and staying in the moment, not thinking, I can't wait for this victory to be done. I wish I could avoid this. No, I stay present. So for me, dude, like the translation into every area of my life goes back to the foundational roots of the things that you and I worked on, you know, from being present to practicing like what it's really going to be like. You know, I can tell, I tell kids for years, I would like, you know, I trained at TriStar for like seven years. I mean, Faraz Sahabi was my coach before he was GSP's coach. So like, that's the level of people that I'm training with. I mean, I, I, I've sparred round, round, rounds with John Jones and Jerome LeBanner and, you know, you name it, I've probably trained with those guys. And that's a pretty serious gym to walk into. But every day I walked into TriStar, I had my headphones on, you know, when I hit the bridge and the crowd noise starts, right? And I would go over taping my hands and walking in and, you know, here's the crowd and the noise and the lights. And, you know, I picture all that stuff. For years, I did those repetitions over and over and over again. And so, I mean, like there, there's just so many little things, Kane, attached to the work that you do when it comes to preparing yourself, it's not just for athletics, man, it's for success and, and excellence. You know, that's really what life is about, that you're aiming for in life, right? Is for some kind of success and some kind of excellence. Um, but that stuff needs preparation. And I think that's the biggest thing is we prep, we prepare the body all the time, but we don't really prepare the mind. And that was really kind of, um, like I said, man, I, I found myself with an irate customer using some breathing techniques. Attention athletes, coaches, and parents of athletes. Mental performance is the key to unlocking unshakable confidence, forging unbreakable mental toughness, and gaining an almost unfair edge over the competition. So why are so many athletes leaving their mental performance training up to chance? And why are so many coaches flat out ignoring it? Look, if you're an athlete and you know you can perform at a higher level than you currently are, but you're not sure what's missing, or if you're a coach or parent who's tired of seeing your athletes fall short of their potential because they lack confidence or mental toughness, and you're looking for a step-by-step -step program that they can use to master the mental game, you're in exactly the right place. I'm Brian Kane, world-renowned mental performance coach, and I've had the privilege to work with Olympic athletes, MMA world champions, 
Major League Baseball Cy Young Award winners and Heisman Trophy winners on closing the gap from where they were to where they wanted to be in mental performance. And now, with my 30 Days to Mental Performance Mastery for Athletes program, you can get the same training that's helped these world champions close the gap from where they were to where they wanted to be and needed to be to win. Head over to briancane.com and click on athletes to get started today. If we kind of talk about, you know, your, your obviously wrestling career into MMA, people know that you're, you, you've, you know, gym owner, restaurant owner. And as we look at you, people are probably thinking, okay, what is this sweetheart and heroes and what's the free hugs and what's the deal with this, you know, this dude with fingernail polish. And it all comes back to three words, sweethearts and heroes. Would you tell us about Sweetheart and Heroes and the organization and kind of how it came about, your passion for it, what you guys are doing? Sure. Well, you know, I said it started when I was about nine years old. I didn't really pull it all together. Um, <clears throat> when I was, I guess, wrapping up a lot of competition stuff that I was in, um, still training really hard at TriStar because I had a I had a disastrous couple of years and this was another gift that you gave me. I remember this um, and I'll never forget this my whole life. Um, I had like three major fights, like a year and a half worth of training fall through. Hmm. I was supposed to fight Sean Salmon once who, you know, fought in the UFC and in Montreal. Um, I had taken a step back. I was in the UFC scheduled to fight a couple more fights. Uh, One fell through a guy got hurt. O'Brien was his name. Jake O'Brien, um, he ended up losing to Olofsky. He was undefeated at the point. Um, and, um, and then, you know, I, we were offered another fight and I just started training with Faraz and I'll get into sweethearts and heroes. This is just a little setup for it. Uh, I just started training with Faraz and, you know, he said, your wrestling is great. Your jujitsu is great. Um, but your stand-up game needs some work. And I, okay, fair enough. And I'm one of these guys that, you know, I think it was Koscheck that said, you know, your wrestling will never get any better. You might get 1% better in wrestling. Like stop practicing your wrestling. Don't even practice it anymore. Just work on your stand-up game. And uh, um, so we had another offer. And for us actually said, we're not taking it. Cause I just gave him my career and said, we're not taking it. And I don't think I ever got officially cut from the UFC. Um, but they said, go fight anywhere you want. So I did, I took a series of other fights and then we were just about ready to get back to the UFC. And I had a couple big fights lined up and the Sean Salmon one fell apart. Like he didn't get on the plane. Um, and uh, I guess they bought him two p- tickets. I don't know. Um, I actually was talking to Rich Franklin years ago. He's a good, good buddy of mine. I just actually had some messages with him the other day. And he, he kind of spilled the beans to me because Salmon was training out there. And I was training with Rich too, just before that. And I think he told Sean, he's like, I don't think you want to mess with that guy. Um, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it or or not, but that one fell through. And then the Gary Goodrich one was a train wreck. I don't know what happened there. We did the weigh-in. We were both at 215 for the fight. And um, we touched gloves backstage. We were the main event. And um, all taped up, ready to go out. Um, they call him out. They call me. We touched gloves. I walk around the corner and it was like 20 minutes. And Frost comes back in. He goes, Hey, sit down. And I'm like, what? He's like, sit down. I don't know if he thought I was going to get angry or something, but I slid down against the wall and he's like, Goodrich left the building. Like never heard of that before ever. And, uh, 
And so, you know, I, I had taken so many of these lessons from my business career, from growing up as a kid, uh, from Dr. Ireland. And, and I would spend more time talking philosophy, I think, with Faraz than I would actual mixed martial arts. So, like, that's just one of the passions that we share. And um, so I had all these great lessons. And I found myself talking to kids, just sports teams. Like, this was like 13 years ago about leadership, motivation, success, a lot of the things that you and I worked on, I was just given to kids, right? Just local kids. And a guy that I wrestled with in college, Jason Spector, was a teacher. He was a heavyweight. I was a 190 pounder. And uh, that's important to the story. And we, um, he had seen me present to kids before. And I think I presented to a couple of teams at his school. And he was supposed to have this anti-bullying seminar that he was in charge of. And an Olympic speed skater was supposed to do it. And uh, I fell through last minute. So he called me and said, hey, do you think you can do something on bullying? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I can act like an idiot and run around on stage and, you know, crazy stuff. And he said, okay. So I showed up and another school was there. And I did this thing called Sweethearts and Heroes. And really, all I did, man, was grab a dictionary. I have the same dictionary on my shelf from college. And if I open it right now, the word bully would be highlighted in this dictionary. And it says sweetheart. And the word bully in the 16th century was a very endearing term. It actually meant sweetheart. So in the 16th century, like the time when Columbus sailed a couple years later, that's what the word bully meant. You would take your bully to the school dance with you. And, um, it's one of these common threads that we all share as human beings. Like, Kane, you wouldn't be on this call if it wasn't for guys like Dr. Gilbert or some of these other people that pushed you. Like, you know, those people you didn't feel like going to practice, you didn't feel like playing your instrument, studying. Those are some of your 16th century bullies, right? It's a common thread. You, 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 I challenge you to find one person on earth that doesn't have a 16th century bully. Like, that's one of my favorite things to ask people is, Hey man, um, who's one of your 16th century bullies? And they're always like, what? Cause they associate bully with something negative. And then I explained to them that it was a very endearing person that pushed you that probably kicked your butt to make you better. And, um, you know, as I had done this was, as I was going to do this presentation on bullying for Jason, I didn't know anything about bullying at the time. Um, this was over 10 years ago and it hit me that I wouldn't have gotten into that ring if it wasn't for Jason. He was bigger than me, stronger than me, older than me. He pushed me on the wrestling mat. He would slap me on the face in the weight room. You can do it. Bam. Like he bullied me the right way. If in the practice room, I didn't finish my takedown, he would shove me across the room. And that may seem, sound like it was very aggressive and unnecessary. But the truth is, like he did it because he saw more in me. And that's one of the secrets to life and to success is to surround yourself with these 16th century bullies. So my plan was to go into a school and be like, play like a minute of mixed martial arts and then be like, the only reason I was able to get into that ring was because of your gym coach. Like that was my plan. And it worked great. I mean, he had 300 kids per grade level and they loved it. And he became a rock star because he was the guy that got Tom Murphy into that UFC ring. So that was my plan. Did it. It was successful. Um, and um, another school was there and they said, hey, could you do that at our school? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And literally, Kane, um, over two million kids from Hawaii to Houston to Montreal 
we peddled this message of sweethearts and heroes. Now, it really has gone way beyond um, this notion of just 16th century bullies. If I had to boil it down to a log line, I'd say it's really about hope and action. And, um, you know, we are attached and we brought on um, one of the world's hope experts that I speak with. I spend 200 days a year with him. Uh, Rick and I have this Tom and Rick show and this message of hope and action that's unlike anything most people have ever seen on planet Earth. And I don't say that like this. I say it because, you know, in 2014 or 15, I left my career. Um, you know, I was making 200 grand a year in the industry um, and I left it all to make nothing. Um, because I had more teachers that I could count that say we've never seen anything like this. And we need it. And what people need to understand is that the number one thing last year to take the life of a 10 to 14 year old um, has always been car accidents in your lifetime or anyone's lifetime alive. Um, but really, the number one thing last year to take the life of a 10 to 14 year old has been their own hands, has been suicide. Mm -hmm. And it's something we're not talking about in this country. And, you know, just the recent uh, pandemic and other things that are going on, we know that suicide hotlines across the country. Um, the calls are up three to 400% in some places like Los Angeles, exceeding 8,000%. Um, and really, um, when I talk about sweethearts and heroes, I like to say we, I don't really believe we have a bullying problem in North America. And that always kind of confuses people. And they're like, ah, I really, truly, honestly believe that we have a sweetheart and hero problem or the lack thereof. And those are people that give other people hope. That's what sweethearts do. And heroes are people that take action and are willing to do things other people aren't willing to do. And that truly, when you look at a kid that's hopeless, because that's really the battle that we're in, is this battle of hopelessness. Um, that, that, you know, you have to identify what really, why are kids feeling more hopeless than ever before in human history? Um, we should be asking those questions and you know, I'm trying to like dump way too much stuff in the bucket here about sweethearts and heroes for you. Um, but really, that's what I've been on the road doing. Um, uh, we do a tremendous amount of work with teachers and educators, um, as well as parents. Uh, but the majority of our work is with students um, from little kids all the way up through high school and even college. Why the fingernail polish? Well, you know, it's funny. The girl at the UPS store, this is uh, 60, is it 16... 20, Seven years I've had my fingernails painted. And, um, you know, when I talk to, when I talk to kids, I'm like, they're like, well, your fingernails painted. And I said, well, cause, uh, uh, I'm a superhero. That's what I said to the girl at the UPS store today. And then I walked out. I'm like, you never looked at a superhero's nails. They're painted. They're like, really? Um, but when I talk to adults and they say, why do you paint your fingernails? And I say, well, honestly, I just don't believe in telling kids what to do. And then I pause and they're like, huh? and when you say that to a teacher, they're like, well, what do you mean? You, you don't ever tell your own kids what to do. I said, well, the, one of the secrets to leadership and I've really, we've really developed our own brand of leadership. And I really boil leadership down to three main components, which is our influence environment. And then of course, you know, you got the Brian Kane special that leadership is not about what we say. It's about what we do. Do. That's right. And, um, you know, all of leadership comes down to those three things. When I talk to kids about leadership, 
like we don't just talk bullying. We talk a tremendous amount about empathy, uh, compassion. We talk about things like leadership and goal setting and other motivational things. But I have a whole hour long thing I do with kids on leadership. And these are all different lessons in leadership. And um, this is my technology lesson, right? Leaders in technology. You should know that as a leader, how you should and shouldn't use your technology. This is, you know, red thumb reminder. And it's how I started the whole thing. And, you know, how many kids die every day in North America because people text and drive, text and drive 11 kids die every day in North America. And truly, honestly, it's not really so much about texting and driving as it is about the little things that we do as adults that we tell kids to do one thing, but we show them something completely different. Now, every half of every kids I talk to, you know, they're, I always say to kids, I say, you know, your parents are going to, you get your license, your parents are going to tell you two things. Don't drink and drive and don't text and drive. That's right. And you know, how many of you have seen your parents like, Oh, I just got to type this one word. Just, okay. Oh, I'm done. Like that's what parents do. Right. But they tell you something completely different. Right. Or they show you something completely different. Right. And the reality is, how many things do you came tell people, but show them something completely different? You know, it's like the kid. And I say this to kids all the time. I say, you know, this is the age you're going to start messing around with cigarettes and vaping. And I'm not even here to tell you not to like whatever, dude, it's not healthy, but if you're going to do it and experiment, I get it. Um, but when your six year old little brother catches you with a cigarette, you're going to say, oh, you have no idea what kind of stress I'm under and, and mom and dad are getting a divorce and, and you just don't get it. And I say, no, no, no. All you're supposed to do is be like, here, you want one, bro? So your six-year-old little brother and every kid will be like, oh, I'd never do that. Well, that's exactly what you're doing, man, when you show them, right? Because that's what you're doing. You're showing them something completely different. So this is really an inventory when I talk to parents or teachers. of You should really think about deeply all the things as a leader that you tell people, but you show them something completely different. Technology, this is my lesson on hope, right? Because when you cross your fingers, you hope for something. And there's nothing greater a leader can give his people than hope. Um, that's my commitment finger. And that's just super fun to do that in schools because teachers are like, what? I'm like, no, no, that's my commitment finger. That's my forgiveness finger. That's my commitment finger. I think that's the greatest lesson in life is forgiveness. And I have stories for all of these. And I would take the next hour of your time to tell them. This is my one on hopelessness. And this is the little piggy. He did what all the way home? Oh, man. Hang on. We, we, we. Didn't pee. He went, he cried all the way home, right? The little piggy. He went, we, 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 all the way home, right? And uh, so this is the little piggy. And, you know, what did the little piggy need? He needed some massive amounts of significance or purpose because he didn't have any. And he needed acceptance. And those are the two core things that drive a kid or a person, a human into hopelessness is meaning or purpose and, and uh, human acceptance. So again, I have individual real life stories for each one of them that I tell. Um, but it lets me pull people aside all the time because I find that in my personal life, in the restaurant game, nothing changes, man. You're talking to humans. We started this conversation on relationships and every single day, my job, I tell kids all the time, I say, you're going to be on the big stage someday in a coffin. We can talk about it. It's inevitable. It's actually good to talk about stuff like that. We don't talk about that enough in life, but you're going to be on that big stage someday. 
and nobody's come. I say, you know who's going to show up? The people whose life you've affected in a positive way. That's it. Nobody's coming and talking about how big your house was, Kane, or your car, or how big this was or that was. They're all coming because of the way you positively impacted their lives. I'll be there. I'm going to do your eulogy, actually. <laughs> I'm doing it, too. Um, but I'll be there, Kane, because you affected my life in a positive way. And that's the way we should go through life. And all of these lessons, it doesn't matter if it's a waitress, a dishwasher. It doesn't matter if it's the owner of another restaurant that's really struggling at this time. I'm going to be there to give them hope when I can, because that's what leaders do. And so these are just all things that we've kind of identified that leaderships do and should focus on to become the best leaders um, that they could possibly become and to make the biggest possible impact on other human beings. Because if you're living your life every single day that way, affecting people in a positive way, you won. 100%. Better, and that's a bigger win than any, any title you're going to win inside of an octagon, man. So I appreciate you changing your path because there's no doubt in my mind that you could have gone as far and high as you wanted to in the mixed martial arts game and you made the right decision by going into the hope and going into the sweethearts and heroes game and Tom Murphy, man, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. And for the listeners, if you want to pick up more of Tom Murphy, he's got one thing to say before we give you where to get him. I do. I got to give you one last thing, man. You know, I, I focus a lot on hope. Yeah, good. Uh, but I will tell you that, you know, Brian Kane gave me this one, ACE, right? Action changes everything. Your thoughts determine what you want, but your actions determine what you get. Actions determine what you get. I'm telling you, man, my life is riddled with Brian Kane madness. And um, it's just like that every day of my life. But, you know, ultimately, man, with what's going on in the world today, and this is a, a very appropriate time to make this comment. Um, a lot of what I talk about with kids boils down to the fact that, you know, Albert Einstein uh, said that this world is a dangerous place to live, not because of evil people, but because of those who choose to do nothing about it. And truly, honestly, that's what our entire message comes down to. It's about teaching kids in spaced repetitive practice how to actually jump into action, not to talk about it, not to theorize about it, but what can they do when they see someone not being treated the right way? How can they give them hope and what action can they take? And for us, we spend a tremendous amount of time practicing. And I could talk to you for days about some of the goofy practicing that I do with kids, because just like the spaced repetitive stuff that you do with kids, like you probably never thought about it, Kane, but you know, when a kid um, wants to go out for a job interview, and I know this because this happens to me all the time, kids show up at my door and say, can I have a job? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, can I have a job? I'm like, go outside and do it again. And I make kids do that kind of stuff all the time and make them get better at it, better at it. And then I say, no, you can't have a job, but you're going to do really good next restaurant you go to and apply for a job. You ever find a young lady who's struggling and is with a creepy young man that's not real nice? Um, that happens to me. You know what I do? I practice breaking up with her. And I say, break up with me. Break up with me. And I practice this stuff. So really, man, it really comes full circle to the fact that I've developed some great strategies in, for my own success. But I help kids develop and practice strategies, and they really revolve around actually taking action because the world will not change unless our young people actually have the skills that they need to be able to jump into action, to change their own lives, and to change the lives of other people that are in the environments that they're in. 
the thing I love about you, Tom, is you're not you're you and Jason Spector and Sweethearts and Heroes. You're not just going in and saying, "Hey, there's a bullying problem." Well, no kidding, right? There, it's you're going in and saying, "Okay, here's here's the 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 proximal. Here's what everybody sees. Here's the root root cause of why this is happening." And then, most importantly, here's what to do about it. Amen. And I think that's that's the missing piece in mental performance coaching. That's the missing piece in speaking anti-bullying education. Is tell me what to do, right? Like right now, even with, with, with the coronavirus, with the racial tension, everything that's happening in the United States right now, everybody's complaining, but who's given us the strategies is, well, go do this, Amen. you know, go do this to make a positive impact. And, you know, that's, that's, I think where you guys make such a huge impact in the lives of people in, in schools that bring you in and haven't been a high school teacher and an administrator for eight years and introduced you and Jason to some, to schools that you've gone into and, uh, seeing you guys work in the school setting. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're a coach or you're a teacher or you're working in a school setting where you are responsible for the experience and the education of young people, the number one thing you should be doing after this podcast is reaching out to Tom Murphy and Jason Spector and getting Sweethearts and Heroes on your campus. It will not only change your students by giving them strategies and giving them, giving them the greatest experience in anti-bullying education, it's going to change your staff and it's going to change your staff by getting them to understand what it takes and what to do to be successful. So Tom Murphy, man, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and joining us on the podcast. Uh, for the listeners, if you head over to sweetheartsandheroes.com and I always butcher this, so I'm going to spell it. It's sweethearts, S-W-E-E-T, hearts, H-E-A-R-T-S, and A-N-D, here's where I always get beat, heroes. H-E-R-O-E-S, sweetheartsandheroes.com to learn more about their amazing organization and how you can get involved. Tom, appreciate you being with us, man. And I would, I'm going to give you a virtual free hug here because of your t-shirt and also the practice of social distancing of staying six feet away. Thanks, buddy. I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me over the years. And uh, again, if you ever need my help, I'm here for you. Likewise, man. Thank you for being with us. And for our listeners, again, Head over and head over, check out Sweethearts and Heroes. Tom Murphy, thanks for being with us. Dominate the day.